our scripture passage for Pastor Tim's sermon. 1 John 4, 7-12 and 20-21 Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Uh, it was great to hear the word of God being read like that. I love that we hold the word of God high and the authority of the word of God is over us. And I would really encourage you to go ahead and get your Bibles right now. If you sat down to watch this without your Bible, can you get up? Can you go get it? And can you open it up with me to 1 John chapter 4? We're going to be in 1 John chapter 4 in a little bit. We're going to move back to the Gospel of John chapter 4. So 1 John chapter 4 to begin with. And while you're turning to 1 John chapter 4, I want to talk a little bit about the Apostle John. No one can teach us more about the love of God than the Apostle John. In fact, the Bible says of him, he was the one whom Jesus loved, John chapter 20, verse 2. He was the only one of the 12 disciples who stayed with Jesus all through his crucifixion. In fact, even Jesus gave him the responsibility to care for his mother Mary the rest of her life. But he didn't begin this way. He was an intense, passionate man. He was nicknamed a son of thunder. He and his brother tried a power grab to get a seat on the right and the left of the throne of Christ. He wanted the power to rule with Jesus. He was so angry one time, John was, when a village rejected them that he asked Jesus for permission to kill them all. This is John, the one that I just said a moment ago is the one that beyond any other biblical writer can tell us more about the love of God than anyone else. But John became the one who could write about love in the Bible more than anybody else. And that should give us all hope, shouldn't it? That Jesus, because of Jesus, our beginning does not ever define our ending. Did you hear that? I want you to hear that again. With Jesus, because of Jesus, your beginning will not define your ending. Because he is in the business, he is in the power and the work of transforming lives. And he did that with John. So I want you to open up, if you haven't yet, to 1 John chapter 4. And we're going to discover more deeply about the love of God or about our God who is love. 
First John chapter four begins at verse seven. That's where we're going to look. And it begins with a term called beloved. Beloved or dear friends, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now I want to bring to you three points, a basic, a basic outline, and the first point is this. What God is. What God is. Twice, John tells us that God is love. Can you look at your Bibles? Let's look at it. Let's see it. Verse 8, and you can see it again in verse 16. Twice, we see that the very nature of God is love. And there cannot be, that. what that means is this, there cannot be a single thought that God has. There's not an emotion that he ever feels or an action that he will ever perform that can be separated from his love. God is love. Now, I'm going to say that again a little bit differently. Everything that God thinks, feels, and does is inextricably woven together and inseparable to his love. So he cannot do anything, feel anything, think anything that is not saturated by love. His nature is love. He is thoroughly, thoroughly, entirely, systemically loving. He cannot be anything other than loving. And we've got to learn as God's people to understand, and I'm going to tell you when you hit the trials in life, it's even more important not just to understand, but to believe that God truly is love. And if we did, we would not experience spiritual anxiety. We would not struggle with worry. Did you know that? If you really truly believed and understood about the enormous and measurable love of God, you're not going to ever burn with jealousy. You're not going to covet anything. You're not going to be unable to forgive anyone. You will not complain. You will not grumble. Because all of those struggles simply evaporate in the face of the immeasurable love of God for us. I mean, let's think about it. How can we be jealous in the face of God's love who has given us all good things? How can we covet another person's possessions if we really truly believe that God has lovingly and perfectly measured out all things for our greatest happiness? How can we worry about tomorrow when our loving Heavenly Father is already there? He's not bound by time. And everything that He allows to happen tomorrow is part of His perfect loving plan for you and for me. How can we grumble about another person? How can we complain about life when God's love is perfect toward us? You know, several years ago, Jake Millen preached a sermon here at Cornerstone on 1 John chapter 4, and when he was preparing for that, he called me up, and, and he was really grappling 
with verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. And, and I was grappling with that. Together, we were trying to understand that. And a few years now later, I'm still grappling with that. I'm still trying to understand that. We all struggle with understanding that verse but how freeing to know that we are not living under the scowl or the irritation of God as his children. We live beneath his pleasure, his favor for us. Now, I'm not sure you actually believe that. Maybe you do, but I work with a lot of Christians that really don't. Do you really believe that even when you have a day where you fall into sin and you stumble, that you have not earned God's scowl of hatred, that he's sick of you. He is never going to be sick of you, child of God. You live beneath his pleasure. You live within his love. You have his favor. It is set upon you. It cannot be taken away. And to gain any understanding of the incomprehensible love of God, it will eradicate fear. The Lord is on my side, the psalmist says in 118 verse 6. I will not fear. What can man do to me when God loves me so? John tells us in chapter 4, verse 19, you're looking at your text, that our love for God and others, it springs from the love that God has for us. First, or rather Romans chapter five, verse five, the spirit of God poured God's love into our hearts so that we can love people, we can love God simply because God first loved us. How then can we not love every person, even those who are different from us, even those who are even at times against us, when we grasp the enormity of God's love for us? Now, we really need to do something. We've got to figure out, we've got to understand, we've got to define what does love actually even mean? We use the word all the time. We use it to describe our favorite sports teams, our children, our spouse, our phones, our food. We, to, we use love all the time for restaurants and for experiences and vacation spots. Well, the New Testament writers took a word that was almost never used in classical Greek and they elevated it to a new meaning simply because the Greek world knew nothing of the love of this kind. It just didn't understand it. It didn't have its bearings around this kind of love. So the New Testament writers took this Greek word agape, that's the noun form, that's the word love in this passage. John uses it all through his, his gospel and his epistles. And the word agape speaks, and this is hugely important. You've got to listen to this. You've got to get this. Agape, or love, speaks of self-sacrificing love for even the undeserving. Did you hear that? Because that really is a wonderful definition of this love. It is the self-sacrificing love for even the undeserving. It is a self-sacrificing love that's given to one 
who needs to be loved, whether they deserve it or not. And almost all of us, let's just be really honest, almost all of us love because the person that we're loving is a good friend or such a perfect soulmate or they're so kind-hearted, they're so enjoyable to be around, they are so understanding, they are so uplifting, they are so encouraging. We tend to love, we tend to be gravitating towards people that are easy to love, that we gain pleasure to love, that almost actually deserve to be loved. But God chose to love those who are undeserving. And his love takes a form of self-sacrifice for the undeserving. So let's, let's just really level the playing field. This is as true for me as it is for you, whether it is easy to admit this or not. Do you deserve God's love? And the answer, if you're utterly honest and real, is no. But yet God freely takes the initiative to love me, he took the initiative to love you, and he moved toward us, even though we are undeserving people in great need. In fact, Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says this, a very famous verse, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the state that we were in when God poured his love out. We were undeserving. We were still sinners. Listen, we didn't clean up our act. We didn't get a spiritual makeover, and then God began to love us. We were an absolute mess. We were morally filthy. We were defiant rebels toward him, which is what Romans stresses two verses later in verse 10 of chapter 5. We were God's enemies. We were against him. And he reaches out to us even in our rebellion, even in our defiance. And he shows us his great love and mercy. So what God is is love. It's his nature. But the second point that we're going to look at is what God did. What God did. You see, what God is determines what God does. He is love, and love always demands action. I'm going to say that again. This is probably worth at least trying to remember, maybe even worth writing down. God is love, and love demands action. And we get that in verse 9. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God. We were his enemies. Not that we have loved God. And here's where the action comes in. But that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now that word propitiation, I'm going to ask you to think, when's the last time you used that word in a conversation of an everyday occurrence? You probably never have. Usually the only people that are talking about the word propitiation are theologians and pastors and those who just like to talk about big theological words. But it's really, under, it's really important to understand what it means. Propitiation 
Even though it's an unfamiliar word for most of us, it refers to the making of a sacrifice on behalf of a sinner. And it changes God's wrath against that person to God's favor for that person. So propitiation is the sacrifice that is made on the behalf of sinners, and that sacrifice changes God's wrath against sinners to God's wrath for sinners. And his wrath toward every one of us sinners is just. It's deserved. It is right. It's a predicament that has no human solution. And, and it's a predicament that has eternally dire consequences. But God, in his great love, he would not stand idly by and let humanity eternally suffer. Because love acts. Love does. Love moves. Love is going to go from a noun in our hearts to a verb in our lives. And he sent his willing son to be the sacrifice for our sins, who took our guilt upon himself. Jesus took all of our guilt upon himself as if he committed the very sins that we did. And in exchange, his innocence and his righteousness was put onto us as if we had lived his sinless, perfect life. That's what propitiation does. This is how love acted. It's this amazing love that moved Charles Wesley to write one of the church's most beloved hymns. And it goes like this. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me, for him to death pursued, amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? That's the amazingness, the incredible, unsurpassable, immeasurable love of God. It is what God is, and it is what God does. But there's one more point that I want to give you, and we're going to spend the rest of the message on this one. What the people of God are to do. What the people of God are to do. Look at verse 11, 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And John actually stiffens this a little bit more in verse 13 that our love will actually prove, it will give you assurance that you do belong to God. And then he gives us a warning in verse 20. If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And then he caps off the warning by, by reminding us that we have a command that Jesus has given to all of his disciples in verse 21. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. I bet you're going to resonate with what I'm about to share with you from my childhood. When I was a little boy, 
I remember over and over my mom singing a song with me. And it went just like this, and you're familiar with it. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. Later, they added another color. They added brown, and it actually emphasized that God loves every single person on this earth. And when we see someone who is Hispanic or black or Indian or Asian or white, Caucasian, you are seeing a person that God created and set his love upon. For God loves all of his creation. To be the child of God, we need and we must love the way that God loves, freely, intentionally, savingly. And nobody shows us more clearly how we must love than our own rabbi and our own master, Jesus Christ. So can I ask you to take your Bibles and flip back to John chapter 4, the Gospel of John chapter 4, and we'll be here for the rest of this message. And it is utterly, imperatively critical that you actually follow along with me, and I will try my very best to keep telling you where I am in the passage. I think if I am correct, this is the longest conversation that Jesus ever had with any other human being recorded in the Gospels. It's an amazing one. And it opens with the ministry of Jesus exploding. You get that in the first few verses. He is gaining in such popularity. But to avoid the escalating conflict with the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, he begins to take a trip. And he's going to leave southern Israel called Judea. And he's going to travel for 80 miles north up to Galilee. That's where he was born. That's where he grew up. That's where he did a lot of ministry. He's going to move from the south up to the north. But the problem for the Jew was that between the south and the north, between Judea and Galilee, was an area called Samaria. And many devout Jews would not even step foot on the soil of Samaria. Chapter 4, verse 4 says, he had to pass through Samaria. Friends, can you look at me for a moment? It is absolutely critical that we look hard at what he just wrote. For John, again, said he had to pass through Samaria. Let me tell you something geographically. To get to Galilee from Judea, a Jew would often actually cross the Jordan River eastward, travel up along the east side of the Jordan River, bypassing Samaria, and when they got to the northern part of Samaria into Galilee, cross westward back over the Jordan and back into Galilee, thereby completely avoiding even stepping on the soil of the Samaritans. That's how he could have gone. 
So geographically, John chapter 4, verse 4, doesn't mean that's the only way to get from Judea to Galilee going through Samaria. There's, a lot, there's other ways. That's only one way that I gave you, but there's other ways as well. So what does it really mean when John said he had to pass through Samaria? I'm going to tell you what it means and get you to look at verse 34 for a moment. John chapter 4, verse 34. Jesus says to his disciples, my food, my strength, my satisfaction, my spiritual nourishment is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. You know what John chapter 4 verse 4 is really saying? That his father was sending him into Samaria for a divine appointment. There is a woman who desperately needs to know the love of God. We're about to meet her, but there are some things we need to understand first. I've told you uh, several times that there has been no time in human history that was as filled with racism, prejudice, and discrimination than the first century world. I'm not actually convinced you believe me, but I'm just going to keep chipping away at this because the more you study it, the more you study the first century, I believe the more you're going to be persuaded that what I'm telling you is actually correct. Yet, do we really understand what racism, prejudice, and discrimination even mean? Let me explain it to you this way, and it goes like this. Prejudice refers to negative emotions or values that you have toward people from a social group that is not your own. That's what, that's what prejudice is. It's emotional. Discrimination is when we act out those negative emotions and values with inappropriate treatment or, uh, from somebody that's from a social group that's not our own. Prejudice is deeply emotional. Discrimination is visibly behavioral. But racism is a belief. It's an attitude that a person's race is superior to another. And it's almost always your own race that is somehow superior to that of another person's. And all three of these Prejudice, discrimination, racism, all three of them are going to be on full display. They were on, on full display between the Jewish people and the Samaritans who were half Jews and half Gentiles. To a Jew, Samaritans lost their racial purity. And in fact, if a Jew married a Gentile, the parents of the Jew would hold a funeral on the same day as the wedding because they considered their child spiritually, racially dead. Jewish rabbis taught that God hated Samaritans. Are you hearing this? The rabbis taught that God hated Samaritans. But the God-man Jesus heads into Samaria. And reverse racism was true because Samaritans despised the Jewish people. Whenever they came into their land, they treated them terribly. 
But Jesus, the God who is love, breaks the man-made barrier between Jew and Samaritan. They're walking into Samaria. They come to a village called Sychar with a, outside of the village is a very famous well called Jacob's Well. It is high noon. If you read in your text, it was the sixth hour. They reckoned John does their hour to begin at sun up. So it's noon. It is the hottest part of the day. Jesus is tired. He is weary. He sits down next to the well, and he sends his disciples into town to buy food. See, he knew the appointment that his father had sent him to was about to take place. Here comes a Samaritan woman to the well drawing water, and Jesus says to her, give me a drink. And that sounds right to our ears, so harsh and abrupt, but that it's really not in the custom of that day. But she was startled, nonetheless, that Jesus, a Jewish man, would even talk to her being a Samaritan woman. Verse 9, she is startled. You see, rabbis were forbidden to greet a woman in public. Did you know that? They would not even, and they were disallowed to even greet their own wife or their own daughter in public. They taught that women were incapable of receiving any real teaching, saying, and I'm quoting a rabbinical saying, better that the words of the law should be burned than delivered to women. One rabbinical saying went like this, each time that a man prolongs converse or conversation with a woman, he causes evil to himself and in the end inherits Gehenna or hell. See, the Pharisees were often nicknamed the bruised and bleeding Pharisees because they would close their eyes when a woman walked near them and they would often trip downstairs or trip going upstairs or walk uh, right into the side of a building. I'm not even kidding you. They were called the bruised and bleeding Pharisees. But here we go. We've got Jesus, the God who is love, breaking the man-made barrier between a man and a woman. See, God breaks barriers, and that's what love does. He had been sent to her. His father put him on mission, for she desperately needed to know of God's love, and he was about to show it. He invites her to ask him, in verse 10, for living water. Do you see that there? which in the ancient world meant life-giving, soul-cleansing, spiritual water of God that satisfies the thirst of your soul. Living water was how God satisfies your thirst and cleanses you of sin. You see, Jesus wasn't just there in Samaria to break barriers. He wasn't just there to overcome racism, discrimination, and prejudice. He was there to save this woman and many that were in her village. And he would bring many Samaritans into the family of God, where there is no division between Jew and Gentile and slave and free and male and female. And that's what it means to be in the church. That there is no prejudice. There is no racism. There is no discrimination. There's love. 
And not only is there that kind of love for us within the church or brothers and sisters, Jesus is showing that's what God's love looks like outside the church with people who are from a different ethnic group, people that aren't like you, that don't look like you. It's the power of God's love. Jesus offered her living water that would satisfy her soul and cleanse her from her sin, but she responds that he had nothing to draw water with. And the well was deep. By the way, Jacob's well was 100 feet deep. In other words, what she's really saying, and you've got to get gospel eyes to be able to see this, what she's saying is, I want this living water. I'm desperate for this living water, but how can you give that to me? You have no idea how deep my sins and failures run. He answers her deeper questions in verse 14. He affirms he indeed can give this living water to her, but she's struggling to believe. She deflects the conversation back to physical water, but Jesus is not going to let her go. This is what love does. It will not let people go. And he provokes her to see how great her need really is. Go get your husband, he says. And he's about to prove how deep his living water can really go. He tells her in verse four, verse 18, that she's had five husbands and that the man that she's now with, she's living with him out of wedlock. You see, friends, there's a reason that she's walking to Jacob's well, which is a half mile outside of Sychar, rather than a water source that's right in the city, which there were. There's a reason that she's going there in the heat of the day at noon, rather than in the cool of the evening when the women went to go get the water. There's a reason, and the reason is she's walking in a life of shame. She's been rejected by everybody. She's avoiding everyone. She's by herself. And God would not leave her there. You see, she's a scandalous woman. She's a homewrecker. But she is precious in God's sight. Her soul is laid bare. She sees how deep her need is, and she asks, are you the long-awaited Messiah? And Jesus tells her, yes. And it's at that time that the disciples come back with dinner. And they're shocked, verse 27, that he was even talking with a woman. But he's not even hungry. He doesn't eat the dinner that they came back with. Why? Because he's so filled with satisfaction that his father gave him the opportunity to love this woman. And his anticipation is high because she's about to return with a lot of people from the Samaritan village of Sychar. In fact, they asked him to stay and teach them, and he does for two days. He teaches them about living water. He teaches them about salvation and God's love. And the most remarkable statement of this entire story is spoken by the people of Samaria in verse 42. Can you look at it with me? They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. Now listen to this. 
for we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. You see, both the Jewish people and the Samaritan people believed that God was only interested in saving their own ethnic group. Did you know that? But now they understood and now they believed that Jesus had come not just to save Samaritans, and the disciples are beginning to see not just to save the Jewish people, He's come to save people from every ethnic group. He's come to, see, to save people with every color and from every people group and tribe and language and background. It doesn't matter if they're red or yellow or black or white or brown. The love of God is equally directed to them all. And it makes us wonder, did John the Apostle first begin to understand the extent of the love of God from these Samaritans. Because if you were to go back to 1 John chapter 4, where we began, and you look at verse 14, he wrote this, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Exactly what the Samaritans said. God's love so big, his nature to love so deep, that all races, all nations, all people are precious in his sight, and he will gladly, joyfully sacrifice himself and move toward them, whether they deserve it or not, and none of us do, but for the purpose of saving their souls and giving them living water. And he will cross boundaries, and he will break down every single barrier in the way, and he will do more than have a conversation. He will do what is necessary because love acts, love does, and he will go into the deepest wells of pain and division and racism and prejudice and discrimination and rejection and privilege and suffering, and he will give living water to anyone who asks. In Cornerstone Church, I want to ask you, will you do that? Will I do that? Will we do the same as the Lord directs our steps toward divine appointments. See, God is love. And love moves. Love takes the initiative. Love goes to everyone regardless of their background, regardless of who they are, regardless of their skin color. And love goes down deep into the deepest parts of pain and extends the mercies of living water. Can I ask you to do something that I think and believe will yield an incredible result? Will you faithfully this week Ask God over and over and over to give you a divine appointment that you might show the love of God, that agape love, that self-sacrificial love even to those who are undeserving, that God the Father through the Spirit of God will send you and direct your steps to somebody who needs desperately to know that God loves him.
And would you do more than just listen? Do that. Do that. You got to seek first to understand then before you can understand, before you can be understood. We all know that, but do more than listen. Be ready to speak. Be ready to act. Be ready to show and demonstrate just how immeasurable the love of God is that lives in you. That's powerful, church. And Christian friend and brother and sister, that's what we're being called to be. Those who give and love and show just how immeasurable God's love really is. Let's pray. Father, we ask, Lord, I'm going to ask for me. I'm going to ask on behalf of our church, would you give us divine appointments this week? They might happen immediately. And those divine appointments might be in our family. They might be in our neighborhood. They might be at our workplaces. They might be in our friendship groups. Father, we're asking, would you direct us? Would you lead us like you did Jesus, who had to go through Samaria because there was a woman who desperately needed to know the love of God and be saved? Lord, let us prepare, let us be prepared for this. Let us be ready to speak the gospel. Let us share about Jesus Christ and let us bring the love of God through the cross and down into the hearts of the people that we encounter. Lord, would you give us those divine appointments and help us to be faithful and obedient to take them. And I hope that we can hear story after story in the next few weeks of what exactly you did to answer that very prayer. We love you. Thank you for Jesus. He is so amazing. May we be the people of God that love. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless, Cornerstone.